Morning. As Pastor Ted has already said, and he's already uh, directed us this morning, I want us to do that exact thing again. I'm going to start it, and you're going to finish it. And I'm going to say to you, He is risen. He is risen indeed. You know, I love that because that really connects us with the generations that have gone before us. In fact, for centuries, that is the way that Christians have greeted one another on Easter Sunday morning. One would see one coming, and, and they, would, they, they, would, they would get close. I, I can imagine there, was a, there may have been a little bit of a, a race to see who could say it first. But it has always been that. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Why do Christians say that to one another? Well, I believe it's because what we recognize is, is that our, the crux of our faith, everything r- rises and falls, everything hinges on the fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He has defeated death, hell, and the grave. And because that's the case, well, we as Christians get excited when we see one another. This is is the same thing that excites us all year round, but on Easter Sunday morning, man, if if we can't get excited about the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, then, then there's probably nothing else that we can get excited about. Amen? And so it's exciting for me to be able to worship with you this morning here at Ivy Creek. We're excited if you're a guest that that we want you to feel welcome to this place and we're excited that you've come to join us for worship here this morning on what is really the high and holy day of the Christian life. It's a day, today is a day that we celebrate, as I have mentioned, the most important event in all of human history. It's an event which demonstrates the universal authority of Christ. Today is a day that that is an event that uh, that validates that Jesus Christ is truly Lord of heaven and he's Lord of earth. Today we celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And and the reason why this is such an important day in the life of a believer is because we recognize that the resurrection of Christ is the culmination of God's atoning work on behalf of believers. You see, on the cross, God proved his love for us in that he sent his son to die uh, for you and for me. The late Billy Graham put it this way. He said, when Christ hung and bled and died, it was God saying to the world, I love you. I would say probably most of us in this room are familiar with what is perhaps the most um, memorable verse in all of the New Testament. John three sixteen. if you know it, say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, what the scriptures reveal to us is that God's giving of his son meant that he gave him over to die. And it was on the cross that God poured out his wrath against his son, against the the sin that was on Jesus that he bore for us. And it was there that Jesus took the place of sinners, just like you and me. Now, I want you to know, had the story ended right there, it would be a good story. It would be an interesting story. It would be a story worth, worth telling and, and thinking about. Anytime, anytime someone lays down their life for someone else, it's an interesting story. And it's worth noting. And it's worth retelling and, and, and considering. But friend, if that was all that took place on the cross, if all of Jesus' testimony was that he gave his life for sinners, and the story ended right there, I'd want you to know it'd be a good story, but it would not be good news. In fact, if Jesus died and, that, and he remained dead and did not rise from the dead, then as the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, those of us who profess faith in him, Paul says, well, we are of all people the most pitiable. 
But the very next verse in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, but Christ is risen from the dead. And it is that fact that he was raised bodily from the dead that changes everything for you and for me. Therefore, this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to read about the resurrection of Jesus. I want us to, to read about the empty tomb. And in doing so, what I hope to be able to do is to draw out from the scriptures the significance or the, the meaning, the application. What I really want us to do is to be able to determine why the empty tomb is so important for every single one of us in this room. So if you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, take them out and turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, the 28th chapter. Matthew chapter 28. If you Part of our church family, you know we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark, so it shouldn't be hard to find it. You just open up to where your Bible's normally open up to and just turn back a little bit to the left, and you'll come to Matthew 28. If you're using the, the, the Bibles that are there in the seat rack in front of you, you will, you'll find that on page 1,150. I want us to read that together this morning. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. Hear, hear what Matthew tells us took place. He says, after the Sabbath... As the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him, and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly, and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we come before you this morning thanking you for your mercy and your grace that you demonstrated by sending Jesus to die for our sins and in our place. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that that your death was not the end of the story. Just as we've already read this morning, when, when, when they came to find your body, you were gone because you had risen from the dead. Now, my prayer this morning, Lord Jesus, is that by your Holy Spirit, you might help us who have gathered here this, this day with our Bibles open in front of us and our hearts open to receive that which you would have us to receive, that you would help us to, to understand the significance of this empty tomb. What does it mean for us? Help us to... Help us to truly ponder that in the moments that we have together. And then I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you might bring conviction into our lives. That you might transform us by the power of your gospel working through us and in us. This is my prayer, and I pray it in the name of Christ, and I pray it for his sake. Amen. 
Today I want us to focus on the significance of the empty tomb. And what I want us to attempt to try to answer is this question. What does the fact that the tomb is empty on that first resurrection morning, what does that mean for us today? And to answer that question, I think we, need to, we don't really need to look much further than how, what was the disposition, what was the, what was the, the, the attitude of those who were closest to Jesus on that very first Easter Sunday morning. I want you to consider this thought today. For, for us, some 2,000 years or so removed from this event, I want you to know that the celebration of the greatest miracle to have ever occurred for us is a time of rejoicing. For us, it's a time to come to the, to the house of God and to sing praises just as we've done this morning and to lift our, our hands and to lift our voices in praise of the Lord Jesus and what he has done. But that is not how things began on that first Easter Sunday morning. That was not the attitude of those who were closest to Christ. You see, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary that, that Matthew tells us about here, as well as some other women that Luke describes being with that group in, in, in Luke's gospel, they were all going back to the tomb on that first Easter morning. You see, two days earlier on Friday, they had watched as Jesus had been nailed to a cross and hung between heaven and earth right there and they had seen him as he bled and as he died. They watched him heave as he took his last breath and they saw his dead body after it had been removed from the cross. In fact, his body was taken to the borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. It was there that they began the process of, of anointing his body for burial. But because evening had come and because that was the beginning of the Sabbath, there was no way that they could continue and actually complete the, the preparation of the body. And because of Jewish Hebrew law, they could not continue that preparation on the Sabbath. So now it's Sunday morning and they have gathered back together and they're carrying the spices back to where Jesus had been so that they could finish the job that had been started on Friday. And they were going back there to do exactly what Though they grieved, they knew what they wanted to do, and that was to give Jesus a proper burial. And their purpose for going back to the tomb on that first Easter morning alerts us to the fact that there was no joy in their journey. There was no excitement in the air. The Lord had died, and with him, their hope had died. Their lives were empty. And what hung over that first Easter Sunday morning was nothing short of gloom and defeat and despair. But, but don't miss this key piece of the information. You see, the reason that that sadness and that hopelessness hung over that first Easter morning was because the women expected when they got to the tomb to find the dead and lifeless body of Christ there. Their expectation was that they would find the dead body of their Lord laying there in that tomb. But as Matthew tells us, an angel of the Lord had descended, an earthquake had taken place, and in the process of that earthquake happening, the stone, the giant stone that had been rolled in front of that tomb, the mouth of that tomb, was rolled back. And don't miss this, the tomb was opened by that stone being rolled back, not so that Jesus could get out, it was open so that those who came to the tomb could get inside to see that there was nothing in there. Last night, my kids made resurrection rolls. Any of you ever done that? Roll those things up, put that pastry together, and inside of it you put marshmallows, and then you bake it. 
when you bring it out and you eat into it, you bite into it and there's a big hole where that marshmallow used to be because it's melted and gone away. And it's there to tell the story of the, of the resurrection of Christ. There's a hole there in the side of this tomb and they're looking inside it and what they expected to find is not there. The angel tells them, look, you're looking for Jesus. He's not here. He's risen as he said. Now what's interesting, what's interesting is that, is that he is sitting there on this, on this rock on the stone. And the two guards that were given there to, to guard that tomb, they're just laid out like dead men. They, he doesn't say that they are dead. It says that they are laid out like dead men. In other words, they were so petrified by the appearance of this angel that they are just shell-shocked. Therefore, the angel's first words to the women are, don't be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen. Just as he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. Then verse 7, he says, since, since the tomb is empty, you got something that you need to do now. Verse 7, go quickly, tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. Indeed, he's going before you into Galilee. Behold, I've told you. Now, I believe that I can absolutely say with assurance that this was the last thing that these women expected to find when they got to that tomb. As I said, I believe they expected to find the dead, lifeless body of Jesus. But upon seeing that he was not there, notice what Matthew tells us next in verse 8. It says, they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and what? Great joy. And they ran to bring his disciples' word. Do you get a sense of the change that has happened? Do you sense in what Matthew's telling us a change in disposition, a change in attitude, a change in the approach? They, they were walking to the tomb saddened grieved with despair. Suddenly, that hopelessness has been replaced with something else. I had a friend that I worked with for years who used to say this, there was no slow walking or sad singing going on. Now, indeed, they were afraid. They were afraid at what they had saw. I would imagine if any of us were to come into the real glory of God and see the angel of the Lord standing before us, we too would be afraid. What did it mean that his body was not there? They didn't have all the information yet, but there was hope. There was joy. There was something that they did not have on the journey to the tomb. Now they had. And what that does is that brings me to the first point that I want you to see on your outline this morning. In your bulletin, you should have an outline of the sermon. And I want you to notice the first point that I want you to note from what this text teaches us is this. The empty tomb means that hope can be brought to empty lives. Hope can be brought to empty lives. I hope you caught that when you see the reversal in the gloom and the despair that, that pervaded their journey to the tomb. Now as they leave, they're leaving with great joy. And what that means for you and for me, those of us who know the rest of the story, I mean, let's face it, when we came here this morning, we expected to be excited we expected to sing praises to God. We expected to be joyful. We were greeting people with, He is risen, and they were saying back, He is risen indeed. It's been a great day so far, but I want you to just understand that even amid all of that excitement that we know is attached to the resurrection of Christ, we still nevertheless understand what gloom and defeat and despair is all about. We're not immune to the void of an empty life. We're not immune to the gut-wrenching nature of lost hope. You see, lost hope 
can happen when a relationship breaks. We can experience those kind of things when a doctor calls with bad news from the test results that we went and had ran at the diagnostic center last week. We can have that experience where we find out that a job that we had and that we enjoyed and was our source of income has been eliminated and now we don't know what tomorrow brings. We understand that when a loved one passes away and we get that phone call. A thousand other things can come into our lives and remind us that the world around us is filled with gloom and despair and defeat and hopelessness. Friends, to say that life will never throw us curves and bring us trouble and create questions within us for which we have no answers is to ignore the reality of life in this fallen world. In fact, before Jesus, before Jesus ascended, after his, as, before he died and before he ascended to heaven, he said this, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus did not paint things for us in an unrealistic perspective. He told us very clearly, you will have trouble in this world. Then he said this, but, but do not be overcome. Take heart. Why? Because I have overcome the world. And it is the empty tomb that proves Jesus' words to be true. The joy and the excitement that, that filled the hearts of those women on that first Easter morning shows us that an empty tomb brings hope to empty lives. The hope of Easter fills the void of an empty life. And, and I hope that you will see that and understand that from the attitude of the women as they left. But that's not all that we need to see. I want you to notice something else that I think is vitally important for us to understand this morning. Something that we might miss if we're not careful. You see, every gospel writer writes about the resurrection. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all tell us from their own perspectives the story of the resurrection. And they provide us a different angle or a different viewpoint. And when we take a composite look, we really get a full-orbed picture of what the resurrection and what the meaning of the resurrection was. But what's interesting is that all four gospel writers include this one person in the resurrection story. Other than Jesus, they all talk about Mary Magdalene. They all mention her. And that just sheer fact tells us that we probably ought to investigate her life a little bit more and get to understand who she is for her to have played such an important role in each of these four accounts of the resurrection. The first thing we should know is that Mary Magdalene was one, according to Luke chapter 8, we learned that she was a woman who Jesus had healed of seven demons. Now, to be possessed by one demon is more than I can possibly imagine and try to consider what it was like, but can you imagine what seven demons living inside of her, what kind of havoc, havoc those, those demons could have caused on her life? What kind of things that they could have done in her and through her? Furthermore, we learned that she was Mary Magdalene, which meant that she was from the, the town of Magdala. And according to the Jewish Talmud, Magdala was a place of ill repute. It was a place where women practiced their trade of ill repute in that town. And consequently, many believe that Mary Magdalene was actually a prostitute and that she had lived that kind of a life, a sordid life, prior to her coming to understand who Jesus was and becoming a follower of him. What we know about Mary Magdalene was prior to her meeting Jesus, she had lived a very, very rough life. Now, if we consider that this morning, don't you find it reassuring that she plays such a prominent role in the resurrection accounts? I mean, the fact that Christ revealed himself to her 
before he even revealed himself to his own disciples, I find to be incredibly interesting. She who had been demon-possessed, quite possibly a prostitute, and certainly had been shunned by others, she was the one commissioned to go and tell the good news that Jesus had risen from the dead. And I want you to know that in that fact, we learn something that is vitally important. Notice the second point on your outline this morning, that the empty tomb tells us. You see, the empty tomb means that no one's past is greater than God's grace. No one's past is greater than God's grace. Now, you may be sitting there this morning, and you've come into this place, and you said, you don't know me. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my story, Pastor, so how can you make that statement? In fact, I had a friend one time who said this to me. He says, if God's truly a good God, then I can assure you he doesn't want to have anything to do with somebody like me. Friend, that may be what you think, but I want you to know that the testimony of the Scriptures tell us something completely different. As a matter of fact, there was a man who sat down with his quill and his parchment and he wrote down an, uh, really an explanation of what took place on the cross. And here's what he wrote down. This was his commentary with regard to what happened on the cross when Jesus died. He said this, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are Healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What a beautiful commentary on what happened on the cross. Would you be interested to know, though, that that commentary was written 700 years before the crucifixion took place? It came from the pen of the prophet Isaiah who under the direction of God himself and the leadership of the Holy Spirit told us in advance why Jesus would come and die. You see, it was God's plan all along that he would send his son to die in the place of sinners just like you and just like me to the point where he even gave the plan and said, this is what's going to happen. And then Jesus came on the scene and fulfilled every last bit of it by going to the cross and dying in our place. You know what all of that means? All of that means is, is that no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how the iniquities and the sin that has pervaded your life, the Bible says that Jesus Christ came to die and to free you of that pain. And it was his resurrection from the grave that followed his crucifixion that proved God gave him his stamp of approval. In other words, by raising Jesus from the dead, God the Father effectually said, I am pleased, I am satisfied with the payment that has been paid by my son. Friend, that also tells us this. On your own, you will never be able to make restitution for your sins. On your own, you could never atone for the wicked things that you've done in your life. None of us could. Not a one of us in this room could ever make atonement for our own sins. But Jesus did everything that was necessary. He lived a sinless life. He lived a perfect life. And he died a cruel, horrible death so that you and I might be set free from the penalty of our sin and given eternal life. His resurrection from the dead assures us 
of that reality. And the significance of the empty tomb tells us that no one's past is greater than God's grace. That leads me to the next thing that I want you to note from this text regarding the empty tomb. The third point on your outline is this. The, the empty tomb means that we no longer have to live in fear. Did you notice exactly what the angel said to the women when they first got there? Do not be afraid. What was the first word of Jesus when he encountered them on the road going back to Jerusalem? First thing he said, rejoice. And then he followed that up with, do not be afraid. And from the context, we know they had every reason to be afraid. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't understand the full totality of what was taking place. After all, the two guards are laying there like dead men having encountered the angel. But the command, do not be afraid, even goes further than just what they were experiencing at the empty tomb. In fact, because of what Christ has done for us by dying on the cross and by being raised from the dead never to die again, you and I do not need to fear some of the very things that make us afraid the most. Chuck Swindoll was writing a book about the life of Christ. He said there are three Ds that really create great fear within him. He said the first one is death. Really wasn't his own death as much as he was talking about the death of someone who he loved. He said, I, he said, I'm fearful of having to live my life with someone not in my life that I have loved so much. I imagine every one of us in this room can understand that. And we have a fear of our own death as well. But it wasn't just death. He also talks about being fearful of the darkness. He says both literally and figuratively, the things that have tripped me up most in life, both literally and figuratively, have been the things that I couldn't see. I imagine there's probably some of us in this room that can identify with that. It's the things that we didn't see coming that tripped us up. So it's death and it's darkness. And then finally, the other one is the devil. He says, I'm fearful of the devil. He says, I worry what he's up to. His chief weapon is deception and he uses it masterfully. I can assure you that I worry about the devil and what he's up to too. I know because I have been deceived by him before. And I dare say there's many of you who have been deceived by him. And so he is a great cause for worry. Here's what I want you to know. The three D's, death, darkness, the devil. The good news of the empty tomb is that all of them have been defeated. Every last one of them. 2 Timothy 1 verse 10 says this, Jesus Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 said this, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And then when we talk about darkness, Christ came to dispel darkness. In fact, he himself said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you see the three D's and everything that goes along with them have been defeated because of Jesus and what he has done. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And he says, death is swallowed up in victory. So if all of that's true, if it's true that the empty tomb means that we no longer have to live in fear, if we no longer have to live in fear of the devil and if we no longer have to fear of darkness and no longer have to fear death, if it's also true, as we've already stated, that the empty tomb means that our past, no matter how sinful and ugly it may be, is not greater than the grace of God, 
And if it's also true, as we've already stated, that the empty tomb means that hope can be brought into empty life, if all of those things are true, then that tells us of an even greater reality. And it leads me to the fourth thing that I want you to see this morning, and it's this. The empty tomb means that that this world is not all that there is. The empty tomb alerts us to the fact that this world, this reality, is not all that there is. Jesus made this statement shortly before he was crucified. He knew trouble was coming for his disciples. But in John chapter 14, he says this, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way. And Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way. I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You see, what that tells us is that this world is not our final destination. It tells us that Jesus has prepared a better place for us, a place in heaven with him. But friend, we must realize that we will never, ever, ever, ever get there on our own merit. We will never make it there by doing things our own way. The only way we will ever get there is by going through him because he is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. Another way that we could say that is just simply this. Christ is the universal authority. In fact, going back to the text that I read for you earlier in Matthew chapter 28, if you go all the way down to the last three verses of Matthew 28, you'll hear what are among the most popular verses also in the book, in the gospel of Matthew. We call it the Great Commission. But listen to what Jesus says. In verse 18 and following, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Honestly, this morning, that has been my goal. My goal is to just stand before you and to proclaim the good news of the gospel that comes in the realization that Jesus Christ died for your sins but he did not remain dead, but that God raised him from the dead. And because that, you not only can receive forgiveness of our sins, but you can have eternal life because of what Jesus Christ has done. And that then leads me to state very simply for you what my sermon in a sentence is this morning. And it's this. The empty tomb signifies that Jesus Christ has universal authority and that he is Lord. He has universal authority, and he is Lord. What that means, if he is Lord and he has universal authority, then it demands that we ask ourselves a question. It demands that you ask yourself a question. Is he your authority? Is he your Lord? Because you understand that by his death and his resurrection, he has done everything necessary. For you to inherit eternal life. He's done everything necessary for you to receive pardon for your sins. The question is, have you submitted to him? The significance of the empty tomb necessitates that you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins 
and that he rose from the grave as your Savior and that you confess that your life now belongs to him as your Lord. In fact, I want you to know there's not any magic words that go along with coming to faith in Christ. There's not some sort of, of, of euphoric feeling that you're supposed to be looking for. The Bible tells us plainly in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Is that your confession today? I want you to know that your eternal destiny depends upon your answer. In fact, this is where the resurrection of Christ really intersects with your life. You see, one day, every one of us in this room, if we live long enough and the Lord tarries his coming, one of us, every one of us, will breathe our last breath in this life. And after that moment, we will stand before a holy and a righteous God. When we do, we will give an account of our lives. And on that day, the very things that we value most in this life will be of no service to us there. Our bank accounts will not count one thing. How many good deeds that we have done will not count one thing. All of the awards that we won in this life will not count one thing. Nothing will count for us on that day. In fact, when we stand before a holy and righteous God, there will only be one thing that will make any difference whatsoever. And that is, what did you do with my son? Did you place your faith in him, in his finished work? in what he has done for you. The verdict upon your life will come on the basis of whether or not you humbled yourself before him in repentance of your sin and placed your faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his son. And on that day, your hope will not lie in yourself, but in what Christ has done for you. Therefore, on this Easter Sunday morning, I have no greater news to tell you, no greater announcement that I can make than that Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, has died on the cross to atone for your sins and that he has risen from the grave so that you can have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, that is the gospel. And it is good news for every man, woman, boy, and girl. And it is why we greet one another this way. He is risen. He is risen Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it's for the people of God. Would you bow with me in prayer?